You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 10, episode 10, Physical Poetry with Erica LeMay. Canadian-born Erica LeMay has become a beautifully disruptive icon in the world of live performance, using her body in ways that defy both gravity and human possibilities. Her journey has taken her from her first ballet class at the age of four to worldwide success and accolades. As the creator of physical poetry, Erica believes that poetry doesn't have to be expressed with words. Her TV performances have been seen by more than 400 million viewers worldwide, and her talent has been featured in international media, including Vanity Fair, Glamour Magazine, Hello Magazine, and many others. She has performed extensively as a soloist guest star with Cirque du Soleil, while developing the unique artistic language for which she is famous today. In this episode, I talk with Erica about the importance of discipline, developing a moral compass, dealing with the imposter syndrome, and stories from her book, Almost Perfect, The Life Guide to Creating Your Success Story Through Passion and Fearlessness. As we've been exploring restoration for the heart of the artist on this season of the podcast, I was eager to hear from Erica about how a tragic experience in her life became a catalyst for creating an unexpected new art form. And I think you'll find her story of resiliency to be an inspiring guide to overcoming whatever challenges or setbacks you may have faced in your own creative life. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy additional interview segments with Erica, including her thoughts on how to handle the downtimes after a heightened creative experience. You could find this and other exclusive content at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. This is my interview with sky dancer, Erica LeMay. Erica, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is truly an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Well, I've spent the past week and a half reading your book, Almost Perfect, The Life Guide to Creating Your Success Story Through Passion and Fearlessness. And I feel like I know you already. You know, it's been such an incredible read. I've been inspired. I've been challenged. It's provoked me to think about my own creativity in new ways. And so I'm really looking forward to having this discussion with you today. Thank you. I'm very honored that you've been reading the book. Well, you've led a long and beautiful career as a performing artist, as a dancer, as a show creator, a health ambassador, and now also an author. So there's many angles that we could take to approach our conversation, but what I'd like to talk with you about today primarily would be resiliency and discipline and what it takes to carve out your own path, or some would say even to create a new art form, especially in a highly competitive world where there are lots of gatekeepers that might expect things to go a certain way, and you seem to have defied all the odds and, and forged your own path. So that's kind of the angle I'd love to talk from. And so I think a good place that we could get started would be in the beginning of your book, you share 
a traumatic experience that you went through, but it's one that you call a catalyst. And that was of being injured in front of an audience, having the entire audience witnessing you on the floor. I'd love for you to tell us about that experience and how that served as a catalyst for your creative work. That's a, that's a difficult part to start with, but happily <laughs> to do so. Just to put you in context, I had been not only practicing my art, but really living for my art since the age of 11, almost even five years old, if I, if I may, I could even say that. But from the age of 11, at that point, I had really, I grew up through my craft. I dedicated everything. My whole life, my whole personality was built on this. And for some reason, we believe on physical performance that we are unbreakable. And um, we somehow negate that that might happen one day. And obviously, what I'm doing is rather quote-unquote dangerous as well. So yeah, I uh, was performing one of these shows, one of these thousands of shows one day and um, in Italy. And uh, funny enough, the rehearsal went perfectly. I think I I had one of the best routine I've I've had in, in a while, actually. I felt wonderful. And in the middle of the performance, uh, it was um, what we called, uh, we called a gala event. So a very for performance for, for a select few, a corporate event. And in the middle of uh, the performance, I'm on my hands on top of three, let's say, sticks that served as uh, hand balancing props. And um, in a very extreme contortion, something seized under me, which later on I understood it was a tendon. But so one piece broke and everything else probably just tore. What I felt from the inside is just this enormous uh, pop noise that resonated inside of me. And I ended up uh, luckily on uh, the floor on my back, not on my head, <laughs> which mm -hmm. is good. Mm -hmm. And I did not lose consciousness or anything, but the crack was so terrible that I knew something very bad had happened. So I'm on my back, the music keeps running, the light cues keep running, and I am aware that my body is disformed now. <laughs> and nobody comes to save me, obviously. So the time for me to realize that I would need to get myself out of this situation I um, just got up, took my left arm with my right arm and uh, just to support and walked, hiding my left side to the audience, walked the other side. And uh, yeah, then became, uh, began the, the start of a long process, obviously, that started with uh, meeting the first technician who nearly passed out seeing me, <laughs> not helping. But um, so that's in itself, it was the beginning of a story, but it shifted everything in my life because my body was not only my, my tool for my work and my art and my craft and pretty much everything that defined me, but it was, I think I said it more what defined me actually. I had, it, it sounds rather stupid, but it would be like, a like a musician that would lose a, a hand. It was it, it marked the beginning of the end of my stage career. So to, to be no longer able to do everything I had been fine tuning for a lifetime was um, the beginning of a long 
internal process, obviously. So for, for that, I think it's been a catalyst and we can talk about it later, but creatively speaking, I mean, at that time, I didn't know if I wanted just to stop or, or anything, like even after the surgery, but I needed to reinvent myself with new limitations. And to me, they, they helped me evolve so much more in my art. So, so, so much more. I'm, I'm grateful. I mean, I hate that that happened, obviously, and I, I would do without this terrible surgery and uh, <laughs> what is now inside of me that holds my my arm to my trunk but but in terms of creativity and also even personality as a for my personal life it, it's, it was kind of a rebirth mm -hmm. well this season on the podcast we've been talking a lot about restoration for the heart of the artist and when i think of your story this is a tangible physical example of this because what seemed like it could have been the beginning of the end it became a catalyst for discovering new art forms. And even as you were talking about, these limitations served to propel you forward. And um, I'm sure that was a painful, scary, uncertain process, you know, but you lived through it, not only lived through it, but you went on to, I would say, create an even much richer art form and, um, and career uh, on the other side of this. And you said in your opening chapter that even before you knew how things were going to turn out, you got out the paper and pen and you started journaling about the future. Tell me how you accessed such a resiliency to, in the middle of uncertainty, you begin to write about the future and you're already thinking about how to rebuild uh, what may have been lost. Yeah, that's um, that's crazy that you take me back to that moment. I've had the chance in my uh, misfortune. In the first row, there was one of the best specialists and um, surgeon of shoulders of Italy. So he understood what happened. He ran backstage and he at least put back the arm somehow in the in the socket, although everything was torn so nothing held anymore the arm was falling <laughs> but and then he taped it and um i decided not to go to the hospital and public hospital and so on and i decided to fly to asia and get a uh, reconstruction there but so i could have a, a chauffeur driving me back to Milan, which where where i was uh, spending the evening before another flight the next morning for bangkok so i had four hours seated in a car to come back with my my shoulder that was taped to make sure that the arm would stay inside the the socket that sounds um, a bit um, disgusting actually it is <laughs> <laughs> but um so that's the first thing i did and i think it's grouping mechanism to open the book and then write okay and then now what's next i need i really needed the what's next to focus on in order probably now in hindsight i can realize that but probably to be able not to focus on on everything that was about to happen and i did not know how bad was the damage to my body either at that time i think i still somehow thought that i i wouldn't need a surgery because that's something i had promised to myself if one day i need the surgery i would stop i don't want to start that road otherwise you can just repair the pieces like uh, like a car when you're a performer uh, in the end, I did need a surgery, but um, yeah, I, re I I wrote for a long, long time, 
literally two, three hours, uh, almost a whole trip, until the nitty gritty of what kind of exercises I could do on a daily basis that would use only my lower body. Like it was very precise. And I think, yeah, this is a coping mechanism of trying to find solution, even if you are still in the unknown of what is the, the reality of the moment. Wow, I'm just so moved by your story, even just talking about it. I just feel the emotion of it myself. I'm curious to know, and then we can move on from this into some other questions, but you mentioned that your art had been a loyal companion to you for most of your life. And I think for most of us as artists and creatives, our art does become a part of our identity. It at least becomes a part of our way of life. But when you were faced with the possibility of never doing this again, how did you find meaning or how did you keep yourself from spiraling into a really dark place? Or maybe you did go to a dark place. What helped you find a sense of meaning and purpose and, and even self-worth in your life? I think that it had many steps. So at the beginning, I was busy trying to just f fix the, the, the damage on the body. So shopping for a surgeon uh, and all of that and then get through the rehabilitation, like the, the very first weeks were, there was no time to think of myself. You know, I was just trying to, I think it took me 12 days before I could sleep more than 11 minutes due to the pain. So I was just in another state. And that probably in hindsight helped because I could not think, oh, poor me whatsoever. It's just, I wanted, yeah, I wanted to go through the next five minutes. Mm -hmm. And that helped me too, because I was so joyful when I could just live with almost no pain or just sleep a night it was okay well i have to be grateful for that very little thing and on the other hand well i'm a very positive person to start with so i think that thankfully that side of my personality came out even stronger and i embraced everything that i could never see because yeah, it was my passion, my art and so on. But on a daily basis to perform at that level means eight hours of training every day, mm. performing around the world. So Monday, I'm in India, the Wednesday, I'm in Los Angeles. And, the, you know, it's always jumping from a plane to another. I've had, I don't like to say that because I've loved my life and the way I grew up, but I've had no life else than that. And I'm not someone that lacks passions, interests and so on. You know, there's so many things I love. So I just, embraced all of those and i embraced having time for the first time of my life without having anyone expecting something from me so it could open a new chapter like a whole new white canvas of i can start my life all over again like my professional life obviously and no one is expecting anything and i can build myself from scratch so i, I thought it was rather exciting and i focused on taking it from that Part. And I only noticed, I think, a, a year later that I had never mourned. And it was someone very close to me who asked me about that, like, oh, how does it feel? And, and I never thought about that because my, probably it's a coping mechanism, but my way of thinking was just to see the beauty that was in this new situation and the time that was the time I had suddenly, you know, I could never go on a weekend or four days somewhere without training. So that that was like, hey, I'm, I when I had this accident, I was 35 years old. And so, hey, I'm 35. <laughs> I can start 
life all over again. And I'm not someone who's afraid of becoming a neurosurgeon at 72 years old. You know, I don't think that we should put these limits of it's too late whatsoever. So it was a new breath, a new beginning. And that probably helped me not to, not going on the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, this experience happened in front of an audience. And as performers, we're trained to camouflage our mistakes. And so here you are almost completely unable to do that. But I'm curious, how important is it to you to admit mistakes and failures and how not to self-destruct by only seeing the flaws because you know your strengths as well as your weaknesses. Us as the audience, except in situations like that, we, we see the perfection, we see the result of your lifelong discipline and your hard work. But for you, you see everything. And I'm curious, yeah, how important is it to you to admit mistakes or failures? Um, and I think there's a parallel with life <laughs> that in the... Uh... When you perform, you have to, it is your duty to make it look perfect, as you said. And the audience should not feel that it is difficult. I not, and I know it is a type of art, like especially in the acrobatic world, to make it more difficult and so on. This is not my style. My style is to make the audience feel I'm in paradise. I'm, I'm having the moment of my life. Even if the movement I'm doing requires eight hours of training per day, it should not feel like that. So yes, you need to camouflage. But then when you arrive in your dressing room after, and that's something I've been doing forever, even before I would go do the VIP pictures and so on, is that I will look at myself. I always record myself and I, I check every single mistakes, make sure that you will not make them again. And unless you're able to admit your mistakes, you will not improve and then you're stuck and you don't help your own case so it makes zero sense and something very important for me in life as well as in my art is to be congruent where with where i'm going so if i want results i do need to go through what it takes for the result so that's that's one thing the second thing is and especially when you work in an aesthetic type of art so ballet performance and so on you would be surprised how self-destructive are a lot of performers. They they see themselves with this reaction of disgust all the time. So this is extreme because you're 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 just brainwashed to, to do that. You know, let's take ballet dancers. They train in front of mirrors and they are just told whatever is not perfect nonstop. So you have to focus on what is not perfect and to better it. But then you you grow into hating yourself. It, it's, it can go really, really the wrong way. And of course, I was not impermeable to that, especially as a teenager and so on. But nowadays, it's, uh, I think, personally speaking, I'm, I'm much more self-secure than, than where I was when I was younger. But it's important that you have a reality check and that it's, okay, I'm conscious of my mistakes. I will not make them again, but it's not to self-destruct. I'm conscious that this is to to take me somewhere. And another exercise that I, I need to do, and that's something I need to remind me all the time, <laughs> is um, <laughs> I try to be grateful and happy whenever I did something right. And even nowadays, you know, now I'm a completely different performer and I think different woman also, and my, my art has matured differently. But even nowadays, I perform 
it's a great success and everything. And I will have a hard time to be happy about the performance. And I really tried to force myself because what's the point otherwise, you know, you to spend the whole life doing something that you pretend you love and you're not able to be happy about it. And so it, there's always a balance to, to have, but um, to get back to the, the question in itself, for me to recognize your mistake is not, doesn't mean you're bashing yourself. You can recognize your mistake, use them to improve, and then be happy about what you did right. Mm-hmm. Very good. You know, I've often made a differentiation between excellence and perfectionism. And I've talked about how excellence is born out of a love for the art form. It's born out of a love for the craft. You want to be excellent. Whereas perfectionism sometimes, at least the way that I use the word, can be akin to that self-hatred or that self-disgust that you were talking about. But I'd love to know, because you are extremely excellent in your work, but how have you wrestled through that tendency for perfectionism in your own life? Hmm. There's so much in this question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) First of all, I like to underline something that, and I'm still being told nowadays, as a compliment that I'm a perfectionist and it is absolutely not a compliment for me because I see it nowadays as the quality of cord. If you are so taken by just reaching perfection, you will no longer take risk. You will no longer do the big steps that are needed to really improve and really go higher in your form of art. And I've been guilty of that. Absolutely. Because first of all, <laughs> perfection is, And I argued with so many people about that, but in my book, (laughs) Perfection (laughs) is not reachable because there's always a way to make your art more perfect. Hence the title of the book, Almost Perfect, because I will always be reaching for perfection knowing I cannot attain it. And I will not be frustrated that I can't attain it, but the pursuit of we can to play with the words of perfection, but actually of excellence is fun. I want every show to see what we talked about before. I want to see what are my mistakes so I can just fine tune a little bit and get it a little bit better. I have some acts that I've been doing. I had a huge repertoire, but some of them I've been doing for 15 years and I was still being asked for that very act for that I would no longer do. But after 15 years, there are many tiny seconds at 5.43 that I could get just a tiny bit better. And this is fun. This is just going into the direction of perfection, but Mm -hmm. to just, yeah, get better. When you're focused, and again, when I was young and naive, (laughs) when I was (laughs) focused on being perfect and thought that this was a thing, or I, I lost so much time. I lost so much time being afraid of taking risks in my art, not taking risks, physically speaking. But in my form of art and the other thing that I, I believe so many artists are guilty of is that to be afraid to show your art publicly. But if you're a performer or an artist, unless you show it, it's a little bit like, what are you doing it for? I would rehearse for three years hidden in, <laughs> in the basement of a studio, just being ashamed of showing the piece because it was not perfect and not ready to be shown. But I would have gotten better so much faster if I didn't have this 
yeah, perfectionism, quote unquote, <laughs> idea. And it will be with me forever. It's like nowadays, I'm big secret here. I would love to sing. And I know that if I start singing, I will have to really push myself to sing in front of someone. But if you never do it, then then what? Then what for? <laughs> you can mm -hmm. hide your whole life. Yes. Me example. And same thing with languages. You know, I, I've learned, I speak well or not well, six languages on a daily basis. Some of them not so well, but enough to converse. And the moment that you decide that you will sound like a, a child when you speak, but it's okay, then you you improve and you get it changes everything or I can no longer ashamed of my accent it's this imperfection that makes it cool I think yes. <laughs> and I no longer want to fix that yes I love that the your statements about perfectionism remind me of what Salvador Dali said he said don't don't worry about perfection you'll never reach it <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I want to ask you about discipline. Let's talk about discipline for a few minutes because the media has often claimed that you are the queen of discipline. And when I read your book, I'm not so sure that I disagree because I think I read in your book that you've only gone like 11 days at a time max for most of your life without training or something something like that. So you've you've held a very disciplined life, a very rigorous schedule. But you know, this word discipline is a word that some people could regard as rigid and borderline unpleasant. You know, in your experience, getting up at 3 a.m. to fit in cardio before you catch a flight or going to bed at a toddler's time uh, in your 20s. But you show us that discipline is the beginning of your freedom. And, and, and I'd love to know for you how discipline leads to artistic freedom in your life? Well, my discipline is what defines also my congruency. So if I want to reach a goal, I have a very precise plan. And unless I'm disciplined enough to follow that plan, I'm not being congruent with my goals and my dreams. So that for me was um, a no-brainer to, and it's still a no-brainer. Otherwise I'm working against myself. So I am able to, and I know and it's something you work at, but to follow a very strict plan and to be very rigorous. And once I do that, I am super efficient with the results come faster. And that allows me to have so much free space for all the rest. If I, if I were to start one day or my days or my year, a little bit without clear goals and, and clear discipline and daily life, I would just be zigzagging my way to success, which I love to think that today might be my last day as well. And I today might be my last show. Time is so precious. So mm. what can I do to get more results faster? To me, this is just serving a purpose. So that's easy. And when it comes to physical strenuous activity or diet and so on i know that most people think this this is what defines um discipline for example with the, the diet i've been told so often come on live a little and you know you because my rules were strict but i don't see it as as it does not remove joy from life it makes me be able to convey my art 
-hmm. you know, how amazing <laughs> it's more. So when I have my, my discipline well ingrained in my life, then there is so much space and head space because the plan is set. So you just go through what needs to be done. And then you have this huge world that opens up that you can do whatever you want with it. That's mm -hmm. my idea. <laughs> yes. In the music world, we might say something like, you have to learn the rules in order to break the rules. It's like you have mm -hmm. to learn the musical scales and, and all of the music theory so that you can then break those rules. And I bet because you have really carved out an art form that is Erica LeMay, it's yours. It's something that you created but it's built on the back of all of the disciplines that you've studied your entire life, would you say? Absolutely. And unless, you know, even after 20 years of being in my craft, I would still use the first three hours of my day doing the same basic exercises because the brain needs to be sharp and be able to do everything perfectly. And then a little bit like a, a musician, then you can break the rules. Then it's so ingrained in your body and your, because you keep doing the basics every single day that then you can go crazy and it works and then you can deliver to, to an audience and that's when it's interesting as well for an audience because you really own your craft and you can then put emotion in what you're doing. I'd love to talk a few minutes about your own personal character development and often in the art world and particularly in the segments of the art world that you've walked through, it can be a really, uh, what's the word I want to say? I don't know if dangerous or risky or, you know, it, it can be a very cutthroat world and, and people can tend to be out for themselves and, and you write about encounters that you had with not so good people. But I know that you also talk about the importance of developing character in your life and the importance of having a moral compass in your own life. I wonder if you could talk to me about why a moral compass and developing character in your life is important to you as a human as well as an artist. Mm -hmm. what, it, um, what you said reminds me of because I was a what we call a child performer, so I grew up touring the world and learning a career and not really going through the usual path with uh, school uh, school play and, and and things like that. I was with adults from a very early age. And the other child performers that I know, some of them are like me, but a lot of them say, I've learned to be the best of the world or I've learned amazing skills, but I haven't learned to live. I haven't learned to be a human being. And I don't, um, it's not my case. I can't uh, relate to that at all. For me to face difficulties is the only way to grow stronger. And thank God I had amazing parents who gave me love and who trusted me as well, who let me go my crazy path a little bit by myself. And that <laughs> that's a great tools and i can't say that everyone had the same but it's only this self-esteem and this self-trust that made me able to really go through the good and the not good you know you have to love yourself so much then when people are being abusive you don't stay in this position and for that it's one of the reasons why i think that i don't have so many bad experiences 
I've seen terrible things that could have happened sometimes and I and I'm very happy for the little girl who yeah walked out of that mm -hmm. so yeah building a personality is um I think maybe for, also for the lack of protection I haven't been protected a lot and I that could have been terrible but I don't uh, I don't dislike that nowadays I'm happy about that and this um to come back to the beginning of what I was saying, when you know this this idea that I've had no childhood to me is um, I've had a childhood that allowed me to grow in many different directions and to grow as a, a very multifaceted human being, which I'm extremely grateful for. <laughs> mm -hmm. And when I talk about the moral compass, I also, you know, as performer, we, as you said, it's cutthroat very often, and then you have to do gigs that. Most probably you, if someone were <laughs> was to, to present that to you in 10 years, you'd not be proud of. It's been important from a very early moment. And I like to repeat that to young performers to think very long term. So if you don't think about the next year because you, you need a job, you want to get to the next step, everything is not a stepping stone. You know, some things are going to bring you down or later on would bring you down. You can't especially now that everything is online. You can't unsee what someone <laughs> did, you know? Yes. And you're just as good as your last show. But I'm happy that I was thinking long-term and that would, keep, that would keep being my advice for young performers to, keep, to, to think long-term. So especially for young female performers, you're very often asked to not undress, but be a little provocative, mm -hmm. which you will, get the, you will get a lot of jobs. They're good jobs. Is it is it what you want to be known for in ten years? Because we're once we saw you in that, we will not not remember that. And that said, I'm not judging nude, provocative, anything. Where do you want to go? So make choices that will serve your future self. Otherwise, it's not like yeah, no, it's just now because it's a stepping stone. No, it's not. Be careful. Think long term. So that's uh, that's also the moral compass that, of course, in life you you need to have that, but. You bring that to your art and well, we could probably talk about that for a long time in terms of, I'm, I'm sure it's the same in every field, in the musical field as well, you know, to accept something underpaid because, 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 well, now you're just bringing everything down for everyone. Wow. That's so good. Thank you for sharing that. Mm, of course. You know, I do a lot of creative coaching with all kinds of different artists. I work with authors, I work with actors, I work with musicians, visual artists. And one thing that comes up a lot across the board is the imposter syndrome. And the, this, this feeling of alienation or this feeling of being a phony. And listen, I have learned that no matter what level of success or notoriety you have come to, that thing still follows you around. <laughs> and I know in your life, you have performed all over the world. You've been applauded by celebrities like Madonna, President Clinton, and yet still you've talked openly about your own wrestling through this feeling of being an imposter. Talk to me about that. And how do you, how do you wrestle through that one? Um, disclaimer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're still wrestling? <laughs> <laughs> I better. Now, before, um, <laughs> before talking about it in the book, 
I did not know that others had that naively enough because I would never have admitted. Uh And, you know, if the accident brought also something to me is that it made me much more humble. I don't, I have no ego. I don't, you know, I was, yeah, I, I, I was that very elite, best of the world performer. And then I became someone who was wishing to one day be able to hold a cup of tea. <laughs> so <laughs> wow. it gave me a little, yeah. Yes. And trying to just lift an arm for a year. So yeah, I did not know that everyone or a lot of us had this imposter syndrome. Personally speaking, I was very self-secure in my art, but now we will fall a little bit into the specifics of uh, my craft. So I grew up being an aerialist with the company. So at the age of 13, I I signed my first professional contract and I've been touring with the professional company, um, what we call circus company, contemporary circus company, my teenage years. But I was this fairly good aerialist, but I wanted to be a hand balancer. That was what I really had. I really had a passion for. I knew how hard it was. And so my whole teenage years after the shows, I would get friendly like with the um, light uh, technicians and so on and ask them to leave a light on after the shows and then I could, I could work on my future. So, And even the coach of the company did not want me to do that because I had not the body for that. Ultimately, that's what made me world famous, but that's another story. So when I finally, after I rehearsed in the basement <laughs> for three years, my act, when I launched that act, and I felt just, you know, I was on top of my game in the aerial world, but on the hand balancing world, I, I've been hiding forever. So I thought I, w- I had a very low level. And actually the reception of the act, which had a completely different style of what we've been seeing on the world stage forever, the reception was very, very good. So I've started to have work super fast, but not for small shows, for like this show with the royal families and with uh, President Clinton and Donna and so on. So it was a lot of pressure fast for something I was not used to. And even in these huge stage where I was um, sharing the stage with other artists that I had been admiring for their craft for a long time, even during rehearsal, I was ashamed. I hoped that the other artists were going on lunch break so they would not see me rehearsing because I thought my level does not belong here. And somehow, I wouldn't say there was a bit of truth because I had invented a new language. But if I was comparing myself to the hand balancing language, yeah, I did not do the skills they did, but then I understood it did not matter. I invented my own thing, so that was much more interesting. But that uh, that very show in... Uh, in London, where I think that happened something like six months after I launched the app, which is like if you had stepped on stage as a singer for the first time, and then six months later, you, you'd be singing at, at, I don't know, at the halftime uh, of the most important. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I did the, the show, great, uh, great feedback and so on, but I could not really catch the, or be proud of, of myself. Or I still thought... Uh, they don't know what they're looking at. <laughs> and I, I went ahead with, with this um, discipline for well, probably a, a year and a half, actually. 
and I was doing the big launch of the the media launch of Cirque du Soleil around the world. So that was my act launching shows around the world of Cirque du Soleil, which is like the most important uh, entertainment company of the world that could not get any any better. And still, I I did not like my level, and I thought that was terrible. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, this like, I'm a beginner. I don't understand. And I think if I had been in my what I felt comfortable in, like being an aerialist, I would never have thought so. I don't know why this was just exclusive to this part of my my craft. So I was desperate, thinking I need to fix my technique and I need to do all of these movements that actually don't work on my body because I'm I don't uh, yeah I don't have the body of a an Olympic gymnast or powerlifter, you know, I'm, I'm more, more have the body of a ballerina. So thank God I decided to invent my own style that nowadays is normalcy around circus schools of the world. But um, <laughs> for me to, to, to feel better about myself, I decided to go, even if I, I was working nonstop, I decided to take a sabbatical to go to China and to work one-on-one with a coach that would um, kindly torture me on a daily basis <laughs> and make me have these skills that Chinese performers have that are impossible. And I've never seen on a body like mine because, yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I canceled one year of my life. I went all the way to rural Beijing and... Um, tried to speak uh, Mandarin and uh, there was, it was very, it was something <laughs> and let go of amazing opportunities in my professional life. I was the only adult that was learning. There were just kids that were incredible. And only then I understood how much of a rock star I was for them because doing what I considered my little skills, they had never seen. And they were in awe, they were queuing to, peek in the little window of me performing, rehearsing. So this whole, and I had a lot of time to think, obviously, I, I nobody spoke English or any other language. So I was, um, me, myself and I, the whole day. And uh, so that, uh, that helps me be proud of what I had created and change my perspective. And from the moment that I no longer decided to that I should be hiding. <laughs> I uh, I really flew high. That was the I think one of the moments of my career pre-accident, the fastest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crazy what confidence can give you. Erica, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. I'm completely inspired by your work and just ready to go be much more disciplined in my own creative path. But thank you so much for joining us on the show. And uh, I wish you the best. Thank you. Thanks to you. Very nice, smart questions that actually made me think a lot. <laughs> good, it's been good. Fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This episode was produced by me, Stephen Roach, with music provided by Sean Williams. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and leave us a kind review on iTunes. A special thanks goes out to our monthly patrons who enable me to continue creating compelling conversations for artists and creatives around the world. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.